I just knew that it was a, uh, you know, a place where they helped troubled youth, or so they said. And uh, from my knowledge, I don't uh, ever recall of any incidents down there or anything like that, other than that's what they did. They had troubled youth there that they had helped along the way, helped them to adjust to society and things like that. But as far as any wrongdoing or anything like that down there, I'd never heard of anything. It must have been something that was always swept under the carpet. Just heard it was a school where a lot of abuse happened, but you know, I, I grew up in the area nearby uh, and heard nothing about it until I was in my late 20s. It's kind of a very well-kept secret in the region. You know, they would help the kids learn a purpose. It used to be beautiful. You'd drive by there, they'd have like a hundred horses outside and the kids would work with them and everything. Yeah. But, what was like the the rumors around town? Were there any about what was going on there? They just weren't paying their bills. Mm. That's all I heard. They were there for a good reason, but there are no free lunches. You can't just sit there and do good and not pay your bills. Yeah, right. And right. that's what was basically happening from what I understand. From the campus of Freedom Village USA, an international ministry dedicated to reaching the teenagers of the United States and Canada. Welcome to Victory Today. My name is Margaret, and this is We Warn Them Freedom Village, an investigative mini-series unpacking what happened at Freedom Village USA through interviews with the people who experienced it themselves. We will mention different forms of abuse and violence throughout this series, so please take care of yourself as you feel necessary. The clips you just heard were all people who live in the area where Freedom Village was located. Maggie and I drove back down Route 14 along Seneca Lake and visited a local coffee shop, stopped at a yard sale, and eventually ended up at the dive bar in town. I wanted to get a sense of what the people knew. Some genuinely didn't have a clue, but with other people, it felt like there was an elephant in the room. The first time I talked to Boy Wonder, he called it a cult. And I'll be honest, that word is enticing. As a society, we're kind of fascinated by cults. Something about them disturbs us, but also intrigues us. And I got even more intrigued when I found someone who was born at the village. Her name is Mary, and I connected with her online after I found a blog she had written called Out From The Inside on her website, wearetheoutsiders.com. Here, she writes about her experience growing up in and life after Freedom Village. Her parents are considered to be one of the founding families, as they had started working with brothers before it officially even opened. By the time she was born, in 1987, they already had two kids and had been working there for seven years when Freedom Village was in its prime. Maggie and I met up with her in a local coffee shop. We sat in the back and got right into it. Your testimony is how you came to know Jesus. Okay. So like your story pre-Jesus, post-Jesus. Mm. The Christian culture is just 
at least like the evangelical corporate Christian church is just like trying to get you to make this decision for Christ like as soon as possible like you were five year olds you're just like so this is hell and this is you know like I knew all of it I knew about hell I knew about everything and I don't know if you guys ever read Revelation but like the mark of the beast and the rapture and the tribute like all this crazy stuff you had I, already read I knew all of it by the time I was in kindergarten like I oh it was God, just my wow. life but that's normal for a lot of Christians too they just grew yeah. up knowing it and they're like well I, I thought I was supposed to be terrified of the rapture when I was nine by the time she was 13 years old she was put into the singing group with the other program kids this was considered to be a privilege because kids were able to leave the property for five to seven days when on tour. The group would travel to places like churches, nursing homes, and prisons, sharing their testimonies, singing, and collecting donations. After her touring years as a teenager, she became full-time staff. When I was in my 20s, I was the main supervisor for the entire girls' school, and I never went to college. Like, I just went through that program, finished high school, and they pretty much were like, okay, you're 19, we're going to put you in as, like, was like 50 teenage girls between 13 and 18, I'm responsible for their entire high school education. Like that's- You were responsible? And yes. you were responsible for their high school education? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I rocked it, but like, what was I doing? Like I didn't, I didn't have any, like also no counseling, like none of that is all like ridiculous, I know. Mary ended up staying till she was 24 years old. She fell in love as a teenager with her now husband and ended up getting married and having a child while still living and working there. She was nine months pregnant with her second child when she officially left. Now to me, this was sounding pretty culty. And for a long time, I never questioned that. It wasn't until I actually started writing this episode that my perspective was challenged. While working on this podcast, I met another person who had been raised at an IFB or Independent Fundamentalist Baptist Church. He was dating a friend of mine and became curious about my work as he hadn't ever heard of the troubled teen industry. He agreed to sit down with me and help me understand what it was like to be raised within that culture. His name is Hoche and he grew up attending exclusively IFB schools and later briefly attending Pensacola Christian College. However, while he was there, he found out that a pastor from his father's seminary, a man he had grown up with, had been convicted of molesting children. Initially, the church had tried covering it up. They allowed him to resign from the ministry and sent him to do missionary work in Germany. Hosh and I discussed this over tea, and he tells me that eventually enough people spoke out, the FBI got involved, and the pastor was extradited back to the U.S. where he died in prison. So... We went down here. My dad goes through this school. It's the first time that I'm ever exposed to racism. It's the first time that I've ever exposed to child abuse. And all my friends are getting abused, right? I'm getting abused and all my friends are getting abused. And let's call it what it fucking is, you know? Hitting kids and, and telling kids boogeyman stories. It's, it's abuse. And it doesn't matter if it's well-intended, and it doesn't matter if the individual doing it is doing it for your own good. Mm. It's never good. Right? There's no excuse for that. This exact thing exists in a variety of different forms in a variety of different cultures throughout history. Right. So this, that we have to be careful not to play the same us and them game with these entities. 
Because the fact is, it's just a different damn flavor of what everybody's doing. Hosh really got me thinking about what exactly a cult is. I started researching, but to find a definition commonly agreed upon in academia was much more difficult than I expected. Among the people who research and report cults, the definition is actually very controversial. If we take it back, the root of the word stems from the Latin adjective cultus, meaning inhabited, cultivated, and worshipped. But the word cult became popular in mainstream media during the 1970s, with the media covering the Manson family, Heaven's Gate, and People's Temple. After coercing the suicide poisoning of nearly a thousand members, People's Temple leader Jim Jones became the poster child of cult leaders. In the last episode, we talked about human trafficking, which raised a ton of money for Fletcher Brothers and was connected to political agendas. But we didn't talk about the methods through which these goals were accomplished. These kids weren't held in chains, and the property wasn't surrounded by a barbed wire fence. To me, the word cult implies a level of brainwashing and spiritual manipulation. So were the people at Freedom Village brainwashed? The next person I want to introduce is Lauren. She grew up in New York City, and her parents sent her to Freedom Village in 2007 at 14 years old. When she was first sent away, she actually didn't even know where she was being sent. She thought she was just going to a relative's upstate. She ended up staying in the program for three years and graduated in 2010. She describes what it was like when she first arrived. Yeah, it was very, it was very, at least for me, like hard to make friends because when you first get there you don't have what they call tp everyone's like toilet paper but it meant talking permission you're not allowed to talk to anybody when you first get there because technically you're considered corrupt you can only talk to people as um who are in certain levels so so you so you couldn't even talk to i mean i know that you couldn't talk to other guys but you couldn't even talk to other girls when you first got there correct some girls seem like cool, and some of them, you know, definitely sound like they were in a low place. So, I mean, it, it was just very weird, and knowing who and I could talk to, and definitely, especially when I first got there, no one I could relate to, really, because no one was of the same age, and not everybody, the only person who was from the city I couldn't talk to. Although there isn't a clear definition of a cult, there have been models created to describe the process of brainwashing. One of these is John Lifton's theory on thought reform, which includes eight core themes. The first is milieu control, in which communication with the outside world is totally cut off, and communication within the organization is tightly controlled and regulated. The second is mystical manipulation, which involves manipulating individuals' perceptions of their own behavior somewhere between like my one and a half two months because of my three months my mom asked me she said if did I want to leave and I said I like never forget I said I feel like God wants me here mm. and it was my decision to stay at least my year and then I continued and I wanted to stay and graduate indoctrinated I thought this is where God wanted me you got indoctrinated so, yeah I, I was part of 
I, I feel like I was I was in it, you know, in the cult at that point. Like with my salvation, I felt like you know this is this was the place for me. Like I feel like I, I felt like I still needed to work on myself. Mm. I wasn't necessarily ready to go back. This slowly broke down her own sense of identity, and out of necessity, she started building a new one. I feel like being in Freedom Village and being forced to like get up, I don't know, I guess at the time, kind of like get out of my comfort zone and just be someone so that people would leave me alone. I just wanted them to, to think that I was in it just so I could be left alone. You know what? And Fletcher, something that Fletcher actually said that kind of like stuck with me is kind of like, he said, it, all you have to really do, like, even if you take God out of the question, all you have to really do is listen to most of the rules and keep your mouth shut. Just go with the motion. You don't necessarily have to believe with it, but you just go with the motions and people will stop. Like thinking that you are a corruptor, that they'll think that you've changed, you know, because you are now listening to the rules. The third category is the demand for purity, the moral polarizing of insiders versus outsiders. Mary described earlier that Fletcher would actively shame people who had left the village, gossiping about their looks or choices. He was creating a perception that the outside world and everyone in it were inherently morally corrupt. It was a one-year program there. It was like billed as a one-year program. So you come, you stay for your year, and then we were supposed to leave, but what happened was that because it was such a contained environment, because there was a lot of spiritual abuse, it was like they were very, very pressured to stay once. Like, if you wanted to try and leave at your year, it was, like, not cool. Like, and so it would kind of just be, like, what Fletcher would spin would just kind of bring up your past and be like, Are you, do you really feel safe to leave? Like, everybody's serving God here. You could stay and serve God, too, or you could go and, like, work at McDonald's. Like, what do you want to do? And so it was serve God or McDonald's. That's basically, it. That's yeah. It, yeah. And there would be, like, this the one or two people that would, would leave on good terms. It was very hard to leave on good terms. But if you managed it, then, like, those people go out and do like great things and then maybe we'd like see them at a banquet or something or like a fundraising event that we'd go to we'd see like oh there's like joe that was that left on good terms and like how many times every time we would see one of those people fletcher would find something about them just like did you see their earring in their ear or like did you see the clothes they were did you see her tight clothes like she's not doing well and we can't talk to her like so nobody ever actually left on good terms and we all knew it and it just felt Again, like, I think that my parents had a different drive for being there, but for me, it was just, like, I'm terrified to leave, and I don't want any of these kids to leave. Like, I just was part of the system of, like, let's get them graduated, and then let's find a place for them here. Like, which is quite sad, because it made people fall, like, hard flat on their faces when they left, because they had no support from any of us. Like, anybody that left, it wasn't like a good decision and if we made pretended like it was at least for me I can only speak for myself but at least for me as a staff person I was just like well they shouldn't have left like that's the way that I functioned and thought so I don't think I was ever called to be there by God like I don't think I had that same 
calling my parents had, it was just all fear-based. And so I think that was a lot of the staff because by the time we left, probably 90% of the staff were program kids. 90% of the staff were program kids? That's a lot of kids who never left. The fourth core theme is probably the most obvious to understand in relation to Freedom Village because it's the cult of confession. Every student was required to give a testimony about their sins in front of huge crowds or on his radio and TV show. And it wasn't just one time. These confession rituals were a normalized part of daily life at the village. In fact, many aspects of life were ritualized in ways that seemed designed to elicit shame. Mary ended up meeting her husband at Freedom Village and they became close while touring in the singing group together. She describes the first three years of their friendship as being the foundation of their relationship. In her blog, she goes into detail about her upbringing and healing journey. I'll attach it at the end of this episode and honestly recommend anyone that is curious to go check it out. However, in order to officially date, they had to be granted dating permission. Everybody had to go through Fletcher, including the staff and their kids. The man would go up to chapel at 8 a.m., kneel before Fletcher, and ask for talking permission. Even though they had been best friends for nearly four years at this point, they still had to go through this process. A few months into officially dating, Mary got caught playing truth or dare, and her dating privileges were taken away. For three months, they weren't allowed to see or talk to each other. Mary explains to me that she finally built up the courage to confront brothers about getting back the privilege. Coming down the hallway towards me, and I was like, I need to be assertive. So like, I went over to him, and he gave me this huge hug, and I was just like, you could tell, like, is this a good time? Does he like me? Is he happy with me? And like, clearly he was pretty happy with me in the moment, so he's just like, oh, love you, Mary. And I was just like, oh, I love you too. Can I have dating permission back with Mike? Like, I just kind of slipped it in there in that moment, trying to be assertive. And I wrote this in the blog. Like, I remember him, he, I could tell he didn't remember taking it away. Like, I could tell by the way that, and like, my life had been ruined at this point. Like, I'm just like, this is the hardest thing I've ever gone through. And I could tell that he was like, what? Like, he didn't even remember what he had done to me. And he was just like, sure, like, yeah, I think that. And I was just like, great, and left. But despite her heartbreak and hurt, she still wasn't fully upset with him. For me, again, I didn't question Fletcher ever. I literally thought this was a punishment from God. Like, I was down there like, oh my gosh, like, I've idolized my boyfriend. I must love him too much. This is good for me. Like, God is teaching me a lot. Like, again, a coping mechanism. Instead of thinking, this man hurt me and took away something I love, Mary was following the narrative that God had realized she was doing something wrong and stepped in to correct her behavior. I asked if she ever considered blaming Fletcher. No, never anything. I thought he loved me. Like, I thought it was love, which again, is very abusive. You just think, you think it's your fault. Like, literally, you think this pain is my fault and he just loves me and is trying to help me. Like, uh, like there was no accountability. It was just, just swept up in his charisma that you just, I don't know, kind of wish you could talk to him, but like, I don't. <laughs> But, yeah, I didn't question it. I think one of the most stereotypical elements of a cult that we haven't yet brought up in this episode is the charismatic leader. One person views themselves as a sort of god, 
and wants their followers to think the same. They possess an uncanny ability to charm and manipulate people. Mary is aware that this man is hurting her, and yet in the same sentence says that she thought he loved her. Charismatic leaders are good at disguising their abuse as genuine care and love for the people that are under their control. You know, like there's just a weird thing with like pastors or priests, like we just weirdly assume that they have an easier connection to God, like they can hear better, but like it's all BS. Like, of course it's not like that, but it just, I don't know, he, he had a way about him that he would intimidate people that he felt threatened by. But to the, to the weak, impressionable, or even super pure in heart people, he just abused the crap out of them. Like he would, but not, in, not before he made them feel like they were everything wonderful. So it's like, you know, like he, he would love, love, love and take you out to lunch and pay for all your thing. Like he took my family to Disney World and paid for everything. Like, so he, it's like you paint this picture of a total monster, but that's not what he looked like. And that's still not what he looks like. Like, I don't know. After everything I've been through, like, I don't think I would even trust myself being in a room with him for a day and not come out loving him and supporting him again. Like, that's how charismatic and, like, there's something about him. You're just like, it's true. Everything he's saying is true. And it's like, there's a reason people drink Jim Jones Kool-Aid. Like, it's a thing. And it's just such a back and forth of, like, dominating you, but also making you feel like you're everything. This brings us to two more themes of Lifton's theory on brainwashing. One of these is sacred science, which is when the leader professes a totalitarian ideology and claims that it's an absolute truth. And the other is using emotionally charged language with the goal of impeding critical thought. Constant exposure to this type of language, combined with the other factors we've talked about, will inevitably begin to affect the way that you think, the way that you speak, act, and even the way you treat other people. Sherry, who first came to Freedom Village at 15 years old in 1991, describes an incident when she was being accused of having a crush on a boy. Everyone was at a staff member's house on the property for a cookout when they all went up to the second floor of the barn. When she wouldn't give them an answer to who she had a crush on, the staff member took away the ladder and forced her to sing the song out loud in front of everyone four separate times. O-B-E-D-I-E-N-C-E 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 Obedience is the best way show that you believe. Shame rituals. The point of shame rituals are to break down someone's self-image and sense of personal boundaries. When a person experiences a shame ritual like this, it becomes harder for them to rely on their own sense of direction, since it's always being challenged. The only people to rely on for examples of what is right and wrong are oftentimes the same people who are handing out the abuse, which creates a large bias towards their personal agendas. We see this ritualistic shaming too with the hierarchical, highly mobile level system, at the bottom is the cast of untouchables, who were publicly shamed every day with wood hauling and the silent treatment from the entire community. I wanted to bring Sherry back for this episode because of how she ended up staying at Freedom Village. During her time there, she became close with the only staff nurse. They formed a bond when she first arrived at 15 years old and over the years became, as Sherry herself said, one of her only safe people there. 
but a month before the nurse died, staff at Freedom Village brought Sherry aside. They asked me about going to nursing school, and I'm like, I don't know. I, my answer to them literally was, so because this isn't the lingo that they taught us to use, so I said, you know, I, I kind of feel like I want to be a servant and try different departments out and figure out what's the right feel, fit for me. And it wasn't Fletcher that I was talking to. I was talking to what I call his, I, I termed him his henchman, very s- strong, domineering man in my opinion, arrogant and full of themselves, but that's just my opinion. Um, but it was like they were ultra strict, ultra, ultra strict. And I was terrified of men because my whole childhood I grew up afraid of men and then they made me even more afraid of men. And so when they presented me with this option, the way that they said it was like, well, you know, it's okay. It actually, it's actually good for servants to sometimes have credentials. I'm like, yeah, but that's a big decision. I don't know if I'm ready for this. I need some time to decide. I'm like, okay, well, we'll call you back in about five minutes. Minutes, Let us know what you decided. I had five minutes to sit there in the cafeteria of all places with the nurse deliberating. Do I go to nursing school or do I dare say no and end up with consequences for saying no? So I'm like, well, I guess there's just no choice but to be made, and I, I, I guess I go. And so they gave me a choice between a three-year RN program and a ten-and-a-half-month LPN program. I'm like, <laughs> no question there. So I went for the ten-and-a-half-month program. I was an hour away, and at first they had, a, you know, any of the staff, the nurse sometimes would do it, and sometimes would be another staff would, would drive me, you know, the hour there, and then come back and pick me up that day, drive me back, and then I'd be on dorm duty from and then, yeah, oftentimes would just roll me over to night watch duty, and then I'd roll over into school with no sleep, and people wondering why I'm falling asleep. And it was so awkward, too, because, you know, by this point, I had been outside of the real world for five years. I was 20 going into 21, but I was still the mentality of a 15-year-old and a very sheltered one at that. In spite of this, she had been pressured to become the full-time nurse for a population of over 200 students. She had never received a valid high school diploma from Freedom Village, and during the time that she was working as a nurse, was never even paid a minimum wage. Sherry ended up staying at Freedom Village for seven years. I was working 18 to 20 hours a day, on call 24 seven, for a period of a year until like six months before she died, she finally fought with them to get me a cell phone so I could at least go off campus at night to get supplies because up until then they wouldn't let me leave in case if there was an emergency and they needed a con. I was trapped at this place and I couldn't abandon care. And what am I supposed to do? And I was highly stressed out because I was being put in positions where I had to work outside of my scope of my practice, but I had no choice. And reporting them wasn't even on my radar. like because this is just what I was living with daily for seven years. So reporting, like... It was your normal. It was just my normal, so I didn't realize how bad it was. I, I, I think I would have lost my mind. Everything she is saying makes me think of betrayal. They are making her believe that if she reports them, she'll be betraying Freedom Village, the kids, and the sacred bubble in which they supposedly live which aligns perfectly with the final step in Lifton's theory, the dispensing of existence. 
the group and its ideology become the highest value. At this stage, people in the group will be willing to sacrifice their own comfort, sometimes at extreme levels, if they believe it's in the best interest of the group. But it's all, it was also so twisted, at least for me, because I thought that like psychological pain was like my cross to bear. Like it was good. Like it was a good thing because you have to suffer somehow. Like there's, you know, like suffer as Christ suffered is what he would say. So that makes you go, I guess my struggles, I guess my depression and my anxiety is really just the enemy attacking me because I'm doing so much good. So like he would even preach like if you don't feel attacked by the enemy, you must be doing something wrong because you're not useful to God. So it just like makes people accept their trauma and like just go through it and you think it's the cost I gotta pay and that makes me really sad because there's so many people, especially that have been at the village that are just out there and they think that they deserve their pain. Like they think that they deserve to just be confused and anxious and like, uh, and it doesn't have to be that way. Like it really doesn't have to be that way. I'm not an expert on religion, but I'm pretty sure pastors or priests of any religious tradition don't live in luxury the way that brothers did. His excessive consumption, excessive spending, and excessive marrying, fun fact, he got divorced three times, don't exactly paint a picture of a man of God. Not to mention the fact that he bullied and belittled children on a daily basis, often through the use of racist and homophobic slurs. All of this begs the question, how could people dedicated to doing God's work end up following a man with such glaring moral flaws? Maybe because he knew who to choose to bring into his circle. I think he was looking for people who loved God and wanted to like follow. Like, because, you know, people that are like cult leaders or people that take advantage of people, like you have to have this certain pureness of heart, I feel like is an ingredient that they look for that they can manipulate and take advantage of. And that's what happened to my family. And so it's like, it's kind of like you have to hold two things at once, this like pureness part that I don't think my parents ever meant what happened to happen. And they almost just followed what they thought was right. And it like, then the brainwashing comes in. So then it's just like, you don't see what's happening when it's happening. And right. they just felt, they also felt, and I don't, I can't quite speak to it because my story isn't their story. And right. all I know is how I felt, which was growing up there and feeling like I could never leave because of how like, just the atmosphere that was there. But for them, they didn't want to leave because they felt called to be there because they actually cared about the teenagers and they were so involved in all of these like troubled teens lives that like, so they felt held there by like, we want to help these kids. Like that's why we came here. But for me, it was like, I'm here because I'm terrified to leave. Up until now, Hosh had really been the only person to make me question the original idea of Freedom Village being a cult. That was until Maggie and I were able to meet with Gary Craig, the investigative reporter for the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle. He covered parts of the downfall of Freedom Village throughout the last decade and still follows the case. I asked him if he would consider Freedom Village a cult. And there, you have to remember as a reporter, I'm like extremely cautious with my word choice. So I, I don't, I mean, I think the similarities, you can argue that maybe they are similarities in some ways we kind of use as sort of like a 
really trying to get everybody this sort of singular focus, whether brainwashing or whatever, and this belief that uh, you know, here's your, your safety spot. But for some reason, I'm not explaining well, cult has always seemed just stronger than I've been willing to go. Because mm -hmm. um, I'm just kind of thinking about it in the sense of like the insular nature. Like, I mean, yeah. you have a charismatic leader who has sort of um, portrayed themselves as a godlike figure to the supporters. Yes. Um, and then you have a situation where he's intentionally instilling fear in people about the idea of leaving and trying to create an environment where people will not leave even after they graduate. Yeah. I think, and actually, that's a really good point. I think to me the difference might be, and I think you just hit it, um, I mean, would he be would he be happy if he had a cult? Yeah, I think he'd be ecstatic. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think he would love to be a cult leader. <laughs> but uh, but I often think of cults as where people go. It's like they go to the cult leader, and and you know these students were really. I mean, they were sent to the cult leader. I mean, they, some of them probably by choice. But and, and you know, and they I think and some the of them day, not by choice. Exactly. And at the end of the day, a lot of them you know were happy to get away from the cult leader. To me, the mm. difference may be is if you take like a Jim Jones or somebody, somehow he created some world in which people were just wanted to be there. They felt mm. that he was, you know, he provided them something that the rest of the world didn't. I think Fletcher tried to build that world, but I don't know if he necessarily succeeded at it. He makes a good point. A lot of the survivors once getting out of the village were very happy to leave there. However, I still don't think it's that simple. Many survivors did end up coming back, even though they knew it was an abusive environment. One example of that was Lauren. So, what what year did you get there? Oh seven. Two thousand seven, and you were fourteen. And I left. Yeah, and you left. Um, twenty ten, I graduated. Oh, so you graduated from the program. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Like I graduated from the program like after your year, your year, you're technically like graduated the program. Uh-huh. But like I stayed till high school like graduate became a senior there high school to like junior to junior staff. They would have given me senior staff but I didn't necessarily want to stay. I wanted to go to college. So, mm. so after that first year was it your choice to stay? Yes. Interesting. So, um, well, let's talk I was just... brainwashed. Yeah, you, you were brainwashed? <laughs> yeah, like, I, I, I say it. Yeah, it was. Wow. Um, for both those two years, you would say? Um, yeah, but I mean, I would... I wouldn't say I was brainwashed. Fletcher, I was brainwashed to the idea of freedom to live. Brainwashing affects your mind on a subconscious level often without the awareness that it's happening. It can lead people to make choices that go against their own best interests. It's religious abuse. It's its, its own brand of abuse. And you don't see it until, <laughs> sometimes you don't even ever see it because it has this other person, which is God, attached to it. Whereas like physical abuse, like you're just dealing with that person. But when it's religious abuse, it's like so mental that you attach it to like the divine, which wow, is, wow. you know, and like that's was, was my hardest thing. That takes away all power from a person because 
when it's religious, like, you don't cope with anything. Like, for me, like, I would never, like, do drugs to numb pain because I have religious doctrines. Like, I'll never do drugs. Like, I can't do that. And, Did like, you even have access to drugs no, there? Like, like <laughs> no. Or, like, I would have never committed suicide even though I was insanely depressed. Like, I would have never done that because of their religious abuse. It's like, it stops you from any, like, way to try and cope with your feelings because you're so scared of all the options. I would have never gone to a therapist because he preached against psychiatry. But what I really think locks in the brainwashing is the combination of the spiritual manipulation and the stripping of resources. Mary describes what it was like when she started to explore the idea of leaving. At that point when we left, Mike was working, I remember this because I applied for food stamps when we were there because we had no money. And You applied for food stamps while you were still working yeah, at the program. Yeah, right. And I worked 45 hours a week. I wasn't even on the payroll. Um, Mike worked probably like 50, 60 hours a week and made $272 a week. Sort of, but like, what really, we got that probably every five or six weeks. Like, that 270. So I, yeah, so I reported that and like not even knowing because I'm like, I don't know how things work out in the world. So I just like report that and like the lady was like, this isn't real. Like, you can't even get food stamps. Like, you need to get real jobs. And I'm like, did you see the hours we work? Like, we work our asses off and we don't. And she was just kind of like, I don't know what to do with this application because like, it's not real. Like, it's not even real life to be like that. So to leave and like understand that people get paid weekly and like, yeah. You're allowed to like fight it if that's not happening for you. Like you have like some kind of like in the real world, like, you know, right. if, if your boss doesn't pay you, you're allowed to come back and say, right. like, this isn't right. fair. It's even been weird for me to wrap my mind around that like I deserve to get paid. Like, because I just in that missionary environment, you're just so conditioned, just like, I don't need money. Like, I just want to do this. And so, like, I am the perfect person to be taken advantage of. Just like, oh, you want to volunteer your time? Sure. Like, and I don't even think about it. Like, it's not even something. So, I don't know. It was actually kind of cool to be like, wow, we have money coming in all the time. So, when I left, I was suicidal, like, 24-7. I, by the time, I had a nervous breakdown before I left. By the time I left, I was working 18 to 20 hours a day by myself, seven days a week, on call 24-7. I was being paid $98.71 a month if they decided that they were going to pay me that month. I kept all my... A month? A month. I have all my paycheck stubs. Every single one of them. But there's not much they can do, first of all, because of statute of limitations. And second of all, like, there was no signed document. It was just they rolled me into staff... I didn't get paid for the first 10 months of being on staff at all. Um, and it wasn't until I was in nursing school and having expenses like needing to pay for my lunch and stuff that the RN fought for them to pay me. Here's the kicker, and I know this part because I ended up on staff years later. I got funneled into their whole pipeline there. Um, they don't pay the staff. They were very favorable on who they paid and how much they paid. By not paying people, he keeps them dependent on himself as the provider. They are physically, emotionally, and spiritually trapped in his agenda. At this point, Mary and I had been talking in the coffee shop for almost three hours. I ask her if she has any final thoughts. I think that there are people that should never be given 
positions of authority and power. Like, mm. and this goes beyond the church. And I think like maybe the rest of the world is moving towards catching up to that. Of like, why do we give narcissistic people power? Like, why are we giving this to them? It's like, that's exactly what he was. He was one of those people, and my family got pulled into it. And but we're okay. Like, and that's there is a happy ending to the story, at least for us, not for him. Which. I mean, my mom always said it all comes out in the wash. Like, it will always come out in the wash. Like, you just do what you know is right, and everything else will be taken care of. And now my family is okay. Like, I mean, we have a lot to work through. We have a lot of trauma that we've each kind of gone on our own journey to address. But, it's like, I'll never, ever again put people on pedestals. Like, I'll never... I mean, I go to church now, but I'm just like, I'll never have, like, allegiance to any type of leader ever again, spiritual or non-spiritual. Like, it's not happening. I don't think it's healthy. During the year 2011, a large group of staff, including Mary's family, finally left Freedom Village because they were not being paid. In 2019, when Brothers received his latest bankruptcy debt, he had no other choice but to sell the property for $1 million and to start paying off his creditors. His long history of unpaid debts and unaccounted for transactions are just further proof of his obsession with money. Based on everything we've heard about the horrendous living conditions and unpaid staff, coupled with the thousands of dollars they were bringing in through the adopted team programs and donations, all goes to show that the purpose of Freedom Village was never about helping children, but rather about profit. A way to guarantee that profit was to get long-term, loyal members, and I would argue through tactics of brainwashing. Even if academics can't come to a consensus on the definition of a cult, I think we can acknowledge when a group of people are being manipulated and exploited. When people are unknowingly being taken advantage of for money. When I describe Freedom Village to other people, I do use the word cult because I think it helps people understand that this went further and deeper than just an abusive boarding school. As we learned from the last episode, this is a huge network of programs throughout the United States. A large number of the kids are being funneled into these places from foster care or low-income neighborhoods. They are already financially disempowered, making them easy targets for people with profit as a part of their agenda. Many of the kids who end up in these programs are sent by the government or through a connection to the church. These systems supposedly exist to protect the interests of vulnerable kids. And yet, in reality, they are the ones delivering children directly into the hands of abusive, profit-driven institutions that lack accountability. We've already heard about what it's like from people inside the program. But what happens after? What kinds of scars have been left from this experience? And what will it take to heal them? On the next episode of We Warn Them Freedom Village. I just noticed throughout those interviews that these kids kept talking about things that to me just felt like PTSD. I mean, like by the book, you know, like by the diagnostic criteria. This desire that we have for sex, it's God-given, it's natural. And to shame it and suppress it, and it can be, it can turn into something freaky and ugly. Let me put it like this: When I left, before I was a very emotional person, I would cry over anything. 
When I left, I didn't even cry when my grandma died. This podcast was created by myself with the help of Stefan Sepko, Carlo Soriano, and Maggie Galen. All original music by Gucci Silica, Maggie, and Elson. Check out the links below to follow them. If you want to learn more about the troubled teen industry, please go to wewarnthem.org or follow at wewarnthem on any social media channel. <laughs>